From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window or you can type a comment into the chat window and tell Ace how fond you are of harp music. He's... He's really big on harp music, so uh, give him your thoughts on that particular topic today here on Open Line Tuesday. <laughs> and our host as he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing great, Jack. The only wor- time I hear the word harp is when my brother's here at the Father's Mercy say I'm harping on something, meaning uh, I'm complaining well, too much. I'm just, you giving, know. I'm just giving Ace a hard time, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I've done all day. So it's, 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 it's nothing, nothing has changed. So, so Father, um, in this life, nobody gets out alive. And, that's, that's right. And to take it a step further, nobody gets out unwounded. That's right. And so the question is, what can we do now to put our lives in order, especially those biggest obstacles? And this, as we approach Lent, I might add, in just a few weeks, what can we give to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right now? And ask Him to help us with that particular area. Maybe it's a cross, maybe it's not a cross, maybe it's an issue, a dependency, an addiction, whatever. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39, Jack, we have Jesus who has just left the synagogue, and then He goes to Simon's house and cures Simon's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. Then we read in the very next line that people are then bringing him the sick, the lame, and all who were ill or possessed by demons, right there at the door, we presume, of Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house, because that's where he was in the previous scene when he cured her. We're told very specifically, right there at the door, they take the sick, the lame, all who were ill or possessed by demons, and the like. We're actually told, quote, the whole town was at the door. So in short, Jesus cures many, huh? Yet the next morning, he keeps prayer preeminent in his life because we're told that he rises very early before dawn. He leaves and goes off to a deserted place to pray by himself. But what happens in the next line? Simon and others then pursue him at that location and upon finding him, tell him, quote, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Then he tells 
Peter and the ones who were with him, let us go then on to the nearby villages that I may preach there also. For this purpose I have come. So he continues on with his travels. What's my point here? He goes on to other synagogues, other villages to preach, to teach, to heal, all the while driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee and curing the sick, the mute, the lame, the deaf, the blind, etc. Are you tired yet, any listeners out there right now? This is a very, very active gospel. Again, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. So what fully is my point? Are you going to Jesus like all these townsfolk? They want Jesus clearly in this passage from Mark chapter 1, plain and simple. Do you want Jesus? Do you want to go to Jesus? What can you take to Jesus, for example, for healing? And I'm about to give a litany, Jack, of things that we can take to Jesus, and let's think about this litany, especially again, as Lent is quickly approaching us with Ash Wednesday on Valentine's Day. Go figure. Isn't that Wednesday the 14th? I think that is. Yes, it is. Wednesday the 14th. Valentine's Day is also... Uh, Ash Wednesday. Now, Ash Wednesday, along with Good Friday, is a day of fasting and abstinence. So as far as as our Valentine's dinners go, you might want to go the day before on the 13th or the day after on Thursday the 15th, since Ash Wednesday is a day of fast and abstinence. But I want to go through a list here of things we can give to Jesus, and this is what I challenge our callers to call in and witness about today, Jack, or our YouTube viewers live this hour, or our EW10 Radio Facebook live viewers this hour. They can type in the, in the sidebar what it is they're planning to take to our Lord this Lent, or maybe outside of Lent. huh? So what are some of the things we can take to Jesus? Well, here we go. My life, huh? my life itself, my health, good or ill, and anything in between, I might add. How about my temperament? my personality, my likes, my dislikes, my projects, my plans, my past, my present, my future. Hmm? How about my issues, my dependencies, my addictions? How about my spouse, my siblings, my parents, my family, my friends, my enemies? I can give to Jesus my mistakes, my successes. I can give him my my failures. I could give him the world and all of its troubles, right? I can give him my home, my car, my job. I can give him my boss, my supervisor, my superior. By the way, Jack, you're my superior with EWTN Radio, so I need to, I need to make sure that I'm, that I'm very wholeheartedly... Take me to Jesus. Exactly. I you. And, and you are. You and Johnette are on my daily prayer list. I want you to know your names are written down in my little Mead notebook that I renew about every three or four months with intentions, and some of those are staple. They go in every new successive Mead notebook that I buy that I can lift up to the Lord. How about my smartphone? Give that to Jesus. How about my procrastinations, my obsessive compulsiveness, maybe, if that's what you suffer from, my anxieties, my distractions, my anger, my joy, my passions, emotions, and feelings, as the moral section of the Catechism tells us? How about my virtues, my vices? How about my five bodily senses of sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing? Give those to Jesus, huh? How about the four faculties of the soul, the intellect, the will, the memory, and the imagination? How about the ability to walk? What a great gift. The ability to talk, the ability to breathe, the ability to move about freely. Maybe you're handicapped. You want to give to Jesus. My overall general health, my ability to think rationally, my ability to swallow. I had an an anesthetist 
come up to me one time after a parish mission when I was talking that evening, particularly about things we can give to the triune Godhead daily in our morning offering. He says, Father, I'd like, you re- I'd like to recommend something to your list. I says, what's that? He said, the ability to swallow. He says, we, we forget what a gift that is. He goes, quite often I'm with patients when they're coming out of their anesthesia. And when they're first coming out of it, they, they, they don't know where they're at exactly. They don't know what's going on. And they often choke. And he says, the look on their face is just so uh, much that we want to help them. And he says, praise God, they immediately come to, and we're there to help them. We're there to help them set up and everything. We're there with the liquids and whatnot. He says, but at first, he says, the look on their face is one of fear. He says, and it it reminds me as a doctor, as an anesthetist uh, and doctor, he said, uh, the ability to swallow is a great, great gift. We should thank God for that daily, right? And that was very, that was very telling, somebody in his vocation and state in life. Um, so any of these things could also be a cross, right? Is your cross an illness, a disease? Is it your worry about the future, your anxiety about the past? You know, what is it? Is, is it the world economic situation, your own financial situation? What can we take to Jesus like all these people did in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39? By the way, I want to encourage our listeners this hour to read Mark 1, verses 29 through 39, sometime today before you retire this evening, those few passages, and just make note of all the activity that is going on, right? Uh, it could be the past, the present, the future, as I said. Some Sometimes we we have regrets about our past. Sometimes we have fear about the present. Sometimes we have anxiety about the future, right? Well, in those cases, I like to remind my listeners of two great quotes from two great saints. St. Padre Pio says, My past, O Lord, to your mercy, my present to your love, and my future to your divine providence. How beautiful is that? And St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, the great American saint, Jack, she tells us, O my God, forgive what I have been correct what I now am, and direct what I shall become. There's a lot of similarities there between those two morning offerings from these two saints. Again, St. Padre Pio, uh, my past, O Lord, to your mercy, my present to your love, and my future to your divine providence. And again, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, O my God, forgive what I have been, correct what I now am, and direct what I shall become. So again, uh, this is very, very telling in our own lives, what we really, truly, sincerely believe that we can take to Jesus, especially as Lent quickly approaches us on Valentine's Day this year of 2024. Give us a call this hour live and give a witness about what you are taking to Jesus to Lent, or maybe it's something in the past you've given him. Give us a call and give us a witness. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America... Call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. New this month from EWTN Publishing, Standing Strong, Good Discipline Makes Great Teens by our good friend, Dr. Ray Garendi. Dr. Ray gives parents the tools they need not only to navigate the teen years, 
but also to enjoy them by unpacking issues ranging from sibling relationships and peer pressure to curfews and chores to overcoming backtalk and teaching your kids to avoid drugs. He equips parents to give their teens a safer, more stable adolescence and help them develop virtues for a lifetime with practical approaches like five ways to monitor your child's use of technology, a strategy to motivate underachievers, and much, much more. Standing Strong, Good Discipline Makes Great Teens by Dr. Ray Garendi, available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. If you'd like to be part of the program, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. First up is Thomas in the great state of Indiana, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Thomas, you are on with Father Wade. Hi. What's your question today, Thomas? Thomas, Brooke, and I have a question for you, Father Wade. Okay, I sure. I can't manage to get them along or do anything during Bible time. Can you help me with some advice, your friend Thomas? Sure. Uh, he says that he and his five siblings have a hard time focusing on family prayer time. That might be either, either the rosary, or it could be the Divine Mercy Chaplet, or maybe the reading from Scripture. And he's wondering how they can give their attention to God a little bit better. Well, that's a great question to ask, not only for yourself, Thomas, but also on behalf of your siblings, your five siblings, so I commend you on that. So uh, I like to recommend having some type of a pictorial book when the kids are younger, maybe a, a book on the meditations of the rosary with the pictures from from the scriptural passages that each mystery of the rosary uh, depicts, for example, in the five sorrowful mysteries, uh, the agony of our Lord in the garden, the scourging at the pillar, the crowning with thorns, the carrying of the cross, and then the crucifixion and death of our Lord, you know, uh, the, the luminous mysteries which depict Jesus' public life. You know, those five luminous mysteries are very beautiful. The baptism of Jesus in the Jordan by his cousin John the Baptist, uh, the, the self-manifestation of our Lord's divinity at the wedding feast of Cana when he uh, changes water, not into wine, but into to the best of wine, we're told, according to the words of the, of the head wine steward who questions the groom why he's left the best wine till last, right? Uh, the proclamation of the kingdom of God and the call to conversion of hearts is often depicted in art, that third luminous mystery, Thomas, as uh, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is preaching to the multitudes there on, on the, the, what's believed to be possibly Mount Tabor, where the transfiguration also took place, where he also gave the Sermon on the Mount, according to sacred tradition. Uh, and then the, the fourth uh, luminous mystery, of course, is, is the transfiguration itself, so it's appropriate that it follows that depiction, uh, possibly also on Mount Tabor, of Jesus uh, preaching to the multitudes when he gives them the Beatitudes. Uh, and then fifthly, of course, the institution of the Holy Eucharist in the upper room on the night of the arrest. So my point here is, is having a pictorial that depicts these pictures, and maybe before each decade begins, your mom or your dad can ask each child to take one decade and to give a few thoughts of that picture and what they see in that picture. Also, I'm a big advocate, and I've seen this even with, with young people. Um, we see this in the lives of the saints when they write about it when they're older. The, the beauty of silence can help us leader, lead, can help lead us to have a greater attention towards God, right? And that's a beautiful reality. So maybe a moment of silence uh, before each decade, um, and and then your mom or dad could ask each child to to say aloud what they were thinking about during that moment of silence before you pray that decade, and 
this type of prayer with more attentiveness and more quiet and looking at pictures and so forth, you could also have a pictured Bible, by the way, um, really put us in the scene, right? They put us in the scene of what we're praying about. Whether we're reading a chapter of Scripture, we put ourselves in that scene of Scripture. This is known as, as Lexio Divina, divine reading. Uh, or if, if it's the Divine Mercy Chaplet, you're focusing on uh, the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is it's a very liturgical prayer because it's addressed to the Father. Eternal Father, we offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's the four elements of the Eucharist, right? Eternal Father, we offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, an atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. So there's some uh, ideas there for you, Thomas. Silence, pictures, uh, parents involving the, the, the children in explaining what, what their little meditation was, what they see in the picture. That way the whole family gets involved. Great question, uh, Thomas. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. David is in Louisiana listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. David, you're on with Father Wade. Hey, good afternoon, Father. Um, I have a question for you. Maybe you can answer this. I um, I go to Mass on, um, on during the week, and on a Wednesday evening, there's a Mass at our local church. It's kind of called a, a Novena Mass, from what I've, I've gathered, but the Mass starts with um, uh, a, basically a bunch of prayers, you know, to Mary, asking for intercession, and um, we, ha- you know, the priest reads some, the 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 the, um, the laity reads some, and then uh, after about five minutes or so of back and forth uh, reading the prayers, um, um, the Mass begins, but the Mass begins. Beyond, uh, the Mass begins at the Liturgy of the Eucharist. The, the, the priest goes straight to, blessed are, blessed are you, Lord God of all creations, for through your goodness we have received the bread. We offer you, you know, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. That's where the Mass starts. And, I always, and it just kind of floors me, because it's like so, there was no penitentiary right, no readings, no <laughs> nothing. Yeah, so David, um, David, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that uh, there is no first... You're saying this is on a Wednesday, so it's obviously a weekday. You're telling me that there's no uh, sign of the cross at the beginning, no penitential rite, no first reading, no responsorial psalm followed with the gospel? There's none of that? No. Yeah, no, then there's, there is a problem there, because I was, I was thinking, well, maybe this is a Eucharistic communion service, a communion service that the priest is doing or the deacon is doing on behalf of the priest who's absent, and that's when they bring the already consecrated host out of the tabernacle. But you're telling me that he actually then begins with the words of offertory, blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation, etc. So this does sound gravely wrong. The way you're describing it, and the way that I just ascertained from you to make sure I was understanding you correctly, uh, sounds gravely wrong. Uh, it sounds like personal piety usurping uh, the universal piety of the liturgical prayer, especially the source and summit in this case, which is the Eucharist and its celebration, the source and summit of the Christian life, the Most Holy Eucharist. So, uh, you know, there, there's a chain of command that we follow when we want to give fraternal corrections, so I would uh, approach your pastor privately, charitably, and rarely, and, and ask him, you know, why he's doing this, 
and let him have opportunity to tell you, and then let him know charitably that uh, this is clearly wrong. Uh, it, it, he's, he's usurping gravely the, the, the rubrics of the Mass uh, for the liturgy of the Word. In fact, it sounds like he's bypassing the liturgy of the Word. And the celebration of the Eucharist is really two liturgies side by side. It's the liturgy of the Word followed by the liturgy of the Eucharist. That constitutes one Mass, those two liturgies. And the liturgy of the Word ends after the general intercessions, which are officially titled in the Roman Missal, the Universal Prayer. Now, uh, at, a, at a weekday Mass like that, the Universal Prayer, the general intercessions, are optional. So he could go right from the Gospel straight to the Offertory, or right from the homily that comes right after the Gospel straight to the Offertory. You know, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. He could do that, because it's not required to have the Universal Prayer, also known as the general intercessions. That said, from what you're telling me, he's bypassing the first reading, the responsorial psalm, and the Gospel. And that's very wrong. And after talking to him, if, if you don't see any improvement or correction, I should say, not improvement, but correction of his fault here, then I would write uh, to the bishop directly again, short to the point, describing what's going on, but a very charitable letter to your bishop. Not one where you're showing anger, just, you know, we want to follow St. Thomas Aquinas's hallmark of privately, charitably, and rarely addressing the situation with the person first, and if there's no uh, correction after that, then we go to their superior, and that's what you want to do. So sorry to hear about this, uh, uh, David, but uh, hopefully it'll be straightened out. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Tom is a first-time caller in the great state of Indiana, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Tom, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. I have a question as far as uh, prayer. Sure. Um, in praying uh, to Mary and to the saints, is there any reference uh, that I can give my non-Catholic friends as to where I have authority to do that in the Bible. Oh, absolutely. The Bible is quoted profusely on this very doctrine in the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, in the section where we talk about the three states of the Church. The Church triumphant in heaven, which is, I believe, specifically what your question is making reference to, uh, the Church militant still living on earth, and the Church suffering, also known as the Church purgative or the Church penitent in purgatory. Uh, these three states of the Church, heaven, earth, and purgatory. So when you say including the, the, the praying to the saints, as a good Catholic, you want to remember, well, it's not just the members of the Church triumphant here that we're talking about. Okay, we include all three states of the Church. That's very, very important, but that's where I want to direct you, is the section in the Universal Catechism on the Communion of Saints, also known as the three states of the Church. The doctrine is called the Doctrine of the Communion of Saints. And so to give you an example, some of the passages we see there, you know, the Bible reveals profusely that the saints who have died aren't disconnected uh, from us and uninterested in those who are still alive on earth. We can have a real communio with them, right? Um, an Old Testament example is Jeremiah 15, verse 1. Long after their deaths, Moses and Samuel, for crying out loud, <laughs> Moses and Samuel are depicted, uh, Tom, pleading for the Israelite people on earth who are still living, right? Uh, and some New Testament examples, uh, Revelations 8.3, the prayers of the saints rise up before God, and then God acts on earth through those prayers. 
uh, John 15, the gospel, I am the vine and you are the branches, the branches being the branching out to these three states of the church. Because remember, the, the church purgative, for example, or the church suffering or the church penitent, the holy souls in purgatory, they are assured heaven, right? Uh, St. Paul says we are the body of Christ, and it doesn't make sense when he says that, Tom, that death would rupture this bond of being part of the body of Christ. And then, of course, Hebrews 12.1, as well as the book of Revelation, uh, we have a great cloud of witnesses. You know, even... um, uh, the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 7, verse verse 14, these are the holy ones who have made it through the great trial and tribulation period, right? So there's all kinds of, um, of examples of Scripture in that regard. Intercession for others isn't optional for Christians. Uh, we'll come back and finish this up, because that's one final point I want to make. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Mark in Louisiana, Mike in Buffalo, New York, Mario in Chicago, and we've still got a couple open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Father Wade, we're talking to Tom in the great state of Indiana about praying to the saints. Yeah, he was looking for some scriptural passages to share with his Protestant brothers and sisters on the Catholic practice and doctrine of praying to the saints. I wanted to wrap up with this, Jack and Tom. I wanted to say this. Regarding intercessions for others, uh, this isn't optional for Christians, especially because of the three states of the Church, right? Love of God and love of neighbor go hand in hand. There's no doubt about that. And the saints are our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's clear. And so when we grow in fellowship with our fellow Christians, we grow in fellowship with Christ by default, if you will. It's it's how the plan is designed by God, right? This is the vision of the Church that the New Testament gives to us time and again. For example, in 2 Corinthians 1.11, St. Paul commands the Christians in Corinth to pray for him. Now, why would he be asking other earthly people to pray for him unless those earthly people had a connection in some profound way? Well, they do. They're members of the church militant, still fighting the good fight on earth, you know, through their faithfulness to Christ. And in in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Timothy commands the Christians to pray for each other. And so that dissensions will cease between them, right? So, yeah, so these are some great passages, but go to the Universal Catechism and um, look at the passages that are listed regarding the three states of the Church and how it all comes together. Uh, By the way, Cesar called in from Sioux City, Iowa, was unable to hold on the line, but he wanted to know what happened between Good Friday and the Resurrection. Well, that's a great question. That's when we celebrate the the sacred triduum, and we hold that Jesus' uh, death did take place. He was placed in the tomb, and during that time of being in the tomb, uh, he descended to the abode of the dead, which was the abode of the just who died before his resurrection, and who by that fact would be assured heaven because they died in a state of justice. And so he went and released them, and sacred tradition holds in this regard that Adam and Eve are part of that, our first parents are part of that. Many of the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophets are part of that. And so he visited the abode of the dead, and this is an article of faith that's mentioned in the Nicene Creed, when we say that he descended to the dead. Um, That's what we are making reference to there. So great question. Thank you so much. 
Next up is Mark in the great state of Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Mark, you're on with Father Wade. God bless you, Father, for your service to the to this uh, militant uh, Christian world that we live in now. I really appreciate EWTN. It's been a godsend for me. The wealth of knowledge that y'all bring to the table, and 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 how how oh how great it is. Oh, it's just a good thing. So thank you all. Thank you Well, thank you, So here's my question. Uh, At what second, at what point for each of the the pre-consecration of the body and blood of Christ, at what point does that actually happen? This is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. This is. This is. That's the teaching of the Church. Great question. Great question. So there is a brief moment there where we have the precious body on the altar, a very brief moment where we have the uh, precious body on the altar right after the consecration of the bread into the precious body, uh, and yet we still have only wine in the chalice. But that, that's, that's not the case very momentarily after that, because the priest rubrically immediately consecrates the wine into the precious blood of Christ right after that. So, but there's a genu- genuflection after each one. But to answer your question very specifically, it's this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood. That's why in the Roman Missal, there's uh, a pertinent rubric right there at that point, written in on the pages in each Eucharistic prayer, that the priest must make these words uh, very clearly, uh, and with volume to let everybody know who's present what precisely is taking place. Uh, there's something, it's, it's written like uh, something, uh, take, the priest must be careful to enunciate these words as their clarity demands. Isn't that beautiful? As their clarity demands of what's really actually taking place. Does this help you out there, Mark? Yes, it does. And I want, I want, could you do one more thing? You just mentioned in the Luminous Mysteries uh, some, some things. One, the Luminous are one of my favorites, but in the fifth, eighth, the eighth uh, 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 saying, that the, the Eucharist is a sacrifice inasmuch as it is offered up, and the sacrament inasmuch as it is received. Could you elaborate on that as to where our Church is right now with its faith and how, where it needs to be, if we only understood those words. Well, the sacrament's going to be received by someone, even if the person's in a state of mortal sin, but they won't receive any graces from that sacrament till the mortal sin is confessed. So, you know, they'll receive the sacrament, because the sacraments work ex opere operato, the Latin phrase there in the English is, the sacraments work by virtue of having been worked. In other words, they work in the person by virtue of having been properly administered. So provided the priest did everything he needed to do, or the bishop did everything he needed to do, or the deacon did everything he needed to do, for example, a deacon can marry a couple, not within the context of a nuptial mass, but he can marry them in regards to the ritual for marriage, and he can also perform a baptism, administer a baptism. So provided the bishop, deacon, or priest uh, does what they need to do, and, and the sacrament has been confected appropriately, it's been brought into existence appropriately and rubrically as the Church demands 
demands of her ministers, then the person receives the sacrament, even if they're in a state of mortal sin. But they don't receive the graces associated with that sacrament if they're in a state of mortal sin until the mortal sin is confessed. This is why it's so important to go to confession before you receive confirmation. This is why it's important to go to confession before we receive Holy Communion, or, or excuse me, our first Holy Communion. That's why you often have the children make their first reconciliation before first Holy Communion. Not that there's going to be much of a chance that a seven-year-old is in the state of mortal sin, but that said, they have entered into the age of reason, and so it's a teachable moment that they can reject God or accept him. They can do this or that. They can do this good or this evil, this virtue or this vice, this thing for their betterment or this thing for their detriment. So the, the sacraments, while working ex opere operato, they're only going to be advantageous grace-wise to the individual according to the uh, mode of that receiver, right, uh, of their state of grace, uh, they're not in a state of mortal sin, etc. And how that applies to the whole Church today, well, you know, we're, we're called to live a life of holiness. You know, the, the last chapter of Lumen Gentium, one of the 16 documents of Vatican II, Lumen Gentium is the dogmatic constitution on the Church, the last chapter in Lumen Gentium, which means light of nations, it's making the claim that the Church, the Bride of Christ, is the light of nations in the world. She's the light of all the nations, the, the church which he founded, right? He, she's his bride. He, he's the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and she's the bride. And that last chapter of Lumen Gentium, Mark, is titled, The Universal Call to Holiness. The Universal Call to Holiness. How beautiful is that? So whether single, married, a consecrated priest, brother, sister, it doesn't matter. Whatever our vocation and state in life, we're all called to become great, great saints. But there's a lot of challenges today, right? a lot of challenges in the world today uh, that are very inimical to, to Christianity and what Christianity is all about. This is why I love that quote from Mother Angelica. She says, you want to know what Christianity is? I'll tell you exactly what Christianity is. It's blood and guts. That's what Christianity is, meaning that we stand up for the truth, even to the point of martyrdom. You know, and we have this great cloud of witness. Your question dovetails beautifully with our previous caller about praying to the saints. We have this great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us in the church triumphant, who are martyrs, who teach us how to live our faith valiantly in the midst of the modern world. One thing I love to tell my listeners, whether I'm preaching live or on the radio here or on television, is this. Um, here's what we hold in common with the saints. The, the, I'm talking about canonized saints and blesseds of the church now, okay? The church triumphant. Here's what we hold in common with the saints. The saints lived in the modern world of their time, just as we live in the modern world of our time. If they did it, we can do it. Meaning, if they attained holiness and attained salvation, we can attain holiness and attain salvation. And they, they paved the way. Does that help you out there, Mark? Hallelujah. Amen, Father. <laughs> all right, brother, talk to your pastor about having a Fathers of Mercy Parish mission, because all of us Fathers of Mercy missionaries love your Cajun food. <laughs> God bless you, Mark. We appreciate the phone call. We're going to head right up the road from you, Father. Uh, Augustine is in Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Augustine, you're on with Father Wade. Hey, Father. Uh, God bless you two guys. But here's my question. So... I committed apostasy uh, when I was a junior in high school, no, sophomore in high school, and I reconverted about nine months or a year later from that, <clears throat> and I'd been receiving the sacraments regularly, and I only skipped the Mass when I was a hobo in France and couldn't find a priest. Um, but 
my question is, is am I, un, am I excommunicated? Like if I've been receiving bad sacraments because I committed apostasy, uh, I don't know well, if that's you, an excommunicatable well, offense. You're kind of confusing me because earlier on, just 30 seconds, 30 seconds ago, you said you are back to the church. You are back to receiving the sacraments. Yeah. So that common sense tells me then that you've confessed whatever that apostasy was, and you don't have to be specific about what it was. Um, so it is true uh, that that uh, there are some things that are automatically ipso facto, they incur automatic excommunication, okay? Uh, heresy is a stubborn denial of a truth of the Catholic faith once received, schism, rejection of submission to the Roman pontiff, and apostasy, which is a formal renunciation of the faith. Um, the, the crimes that are punished with excommunication and that therefore cannot be acquitted by any priest are the following, and thus can only be done by the bishop unless the bishop deputes the priest to absolve the individual. Uh, and that is heresy, pretending to be a priest, um, uh, and there's a few others that I'm not going to get into because I'm not a canon lawyer, but uh, there, for example, physical violence to a bishop, an attempt to celebrate Mass, which that's, that ties into when you're not a priest. So there are certain canonical, uh, certain actions that canonically, automatically, ipso facto, by the very fact itself, that's what ipso facto means, incurs automatic excommunication that can only be absolved by a bishop or a priest, a particular priest who has been deputed by that bishop to lift those sanctions. And we saw this, for example, when during the Year of Mercy, Pope Francis made media, uh, uh, I was going to say media missionaries because of EWTN, excuse me. <laughs> he, ma he made... Uh, missionaries of mercy. Missionaries of mercy to absolve of these excommunications that usually only a local bishop can do. See, those priests were properly deputed by the Bishop of Rome himself, the Holy Father. So in one sense, and, and we don't need to get into detail here, this isn't your confession, but I just want to give you some clarity. In one sense, you're making it sound like you've already confessed your apostasy to your bishop or to a priest properly deputed by him because you're back to receiving the sacraments. Now, if you know in your mind and heart that you have not done that yet, then you should stop receiving the sacraments, you should make an appointment with your bishop and go see him, and then he'll either... Uh, lift the excommunication there through absolving you there on the spot when you have your meeting with him, or he'll depute your parish, I presume, your parish priest in your hometown to do it. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with making a, an appointment to go see your bishop, make it clear up front that you it doesn't need to be for anything more than 15 minutes, and it's something about your past that you believe requires uh, an absolving and lifting of excommunication by him, and if you make that known from the get-go with the appointment, chances are you'll be able to make it, and then it stays between you and the bishop. So I hope that gives you some clarity there. Does that help you out? Wow. Uh that's heavy. Yeah, well, I'm just I'm simply giving you the 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 teachings of the church, and there's there's many good solid Catholic websites that if you simply look up which 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 actions automatically incur excommunication. There's about nine of them. You re and each one will have a paragraph describing it in detail, and you can simply discern, uh, Augustine, uh, whether or not you have done any of those nine. 
you're saying apostasy, but you might mean something else. Um, although apostasy is one of the nine. So uh, you can read about each one, and then you discern prayerfully whether or not you indeed fall under any one of those categories. There's no need for scruples or scrupulosity here. That's not what the church is after here, to make her members scrupulous. She wants to make us free and loving and grace-filled and become the apostles in the midst of the modern world that we're supposed to be. So there's no room for scrupulosity or this is too heavy, I can't handle this. Yes, you can, and I'm so glad you called. Uh, So begin with a little bit of research and then simply make an appointment to go see your bishop if you feel that you need to do that. Does that help you out? Yeah, you might have saved my soul. Praise God! Well, the Holy Spirit saved your soul because the Holy Spirit uh, inspired you to call today. So I would begin with just some simple research without a lot of scrupulous research. Simple research online from reputable Catholic websites like catholic.com, ewtn.com, they both have their frequently asked questions sections, etc. Which actions automatically incur? automatically incur is the phrase you want. You can go back and listen to this podcast to get that phrase if you, don't, if you can't write it down right now. Which actions automatically incur excommunication? Okay, and that's what you want to research, and then prayerfully discern from that list you read, and then decide what to do. Thank you so much, Augustine, for a great, great uh, question today. That's a great witness question. Thank you so much. And we will keep you in our prayers for sure. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Mike outside of Buffalo, New York, New York, rather, listening at EWTN.com. Mike, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father. I listened to all your homilies for the week where people were gone, and I enjoyed them, even if I didn't listen to the entire Mass. And I actually bought your book, Catholic Essentials, A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings. First thing I went to in the book was the difference between mortal and venial sin. I probably talked to you about a year ago, and, okay, maybe it's tough for you to say whether somebody actually committed a mortal sin or not. Maybe only God knows what was in their heart. Maybe that's why you pretty much parroted the three things that are necessary, and you left me hanging. But I'm going to give you... Two examples, and I'd like to know, you don't have to say for sure, you can say only God knows for sure, but it might seem like one of these things was missing for it to be a mortal sin. Now, this is a true story. I believe it was in the southwestern United States. There was a gentleman that served his entire term in jail for abuse of a minor. I believe it was strictly girls that he did. But... When they let him out, he wanted them, he didn't want to be let out. He actually wanted them to castrate him. The state said, we can't castrate you. He said, I know I'm going to do it again. I can't help myself. So it almost seems like something's missing. A, A woman's group of some type took up a collection and they did it for him. Another thing, suppose you do something because you're just drunk. Okay, I, I, can answer, I can answer all these scenarios you're giving me, okay? Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2352, is very, very clear on these ki- types of scenarios you're giving me, Mario. It says, to form an equitable judgment about the subject's moral responsibility— 
okay, regarding mortal or venial sin. Uh, And to guide pastoral action, one must also take into account the affective maturity, that means the maturity of the affections, okay? One must take into account the affective immaturity of the individual, the force of the acquired habit of the sinful action, various conditions of anxiety or other psychological or social factors that can lessen, if not even reduce to a minimum, one's moral culpability and guilt. So we have actions that are always, 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 and everywhere a mortal sin, but subjectively, so objectively, they're always a mortal sin objectively speaking, always a mortal sin, but subjectively it may be a venial sin because the fullness of knowledge or the fullness of will were not present. So the three things required for a mortal sin, which you told me at the beginning of your question, you already understand clearly from the book, Catholic Essentials, and I'm so glad you got it, my, my newest book, my little catechism, if you will, uh, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of your will. Those are the three elements required that must be present for a mortal sin to have been committed. Grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. Grave matter, it seriously contravenes God's moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and gravely so. Number two, you have fullness of knowledge that it contravenes God's moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and gravely so. And number three, you do it with deliberate consent of your will anyway. You carry out the action with deliberate consent of your will anyway. So grave matter, fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter, and done with deliberate consent of your will. If any one or two of those is missing, of the three, you have a venial sin. It doesn't change the fact that something is always, always, and always objectively a mortal sin, like abortion or molestation, as you use the example with the prisoner, etc. Always a mortal sin, but subjectively it could be venial. But here's the thing. The fact that subjectively it could be venial does not give the person carte blanche ability to continue doing the evil action. They have a moral responsibility to still seek out help that is appropriate to the recovery that's required of the sinful action that's in question. So is it, is it alcohol? Is it, is it kleptomania, the stealing of things? Is it lust addiction? What is it? They're required to seek the help that is necessary, not only the spiritual help, like regular confession, if they happen to be Catholic, or if they're not Catholic, regular spiritual direction from their pastor, and good spiritual reading of Scripture and the lives of the saints, etc. But they're also required to seek the temporal helps that are necessary. Maybe a good psychologist, a good psychiatrist, maybe starting to eat right, good exercise, holy friendships. What's the old maxim? Show me your friends and I'll show you your life. Good friends, good life. Bad friends, bad life. And here we have the whole drug culture in our midst. Talk about bad friends, right? Okay? So all these things come to interplay, but it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't mitigate the fact that something objectively mortal is still objectively mortal, even though uh, something objectively mortal is still objectively and always objectively mortal, even though subjectively the circumstances could be mitigated that it makes it subjectively venial, 
in this particular subject, this particular person. Let's call her Joan Smith, for example. So Joan Smith does something that's objectively mortal, but maybe she didn't have the fullness of knowledge that it was grave matter, or she didn't do it with deliberate consent of her will. Her boyfriend made her had the abortion, let's say. There's no fullness of will there on Joan Smith's part. Her boyfriend forced her to have the, the uh, abortion through coercion of her will. So even though abortion is still always and everywhere wrong, it's a mortal sin, subjectively it was venial, but it doesn't change the evil of abortion. So I hope that helps you out, uh, Mario, excuse me, uh, Mike, that's a great, great question uh, as how things could be uh, mitigated uh, on these various circumstances. Again, I want to I refer you to number 2352 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, where it talks about all these different things like psychological factors, force of habit, etc., that can mitigate even less in culpability or guilt on the evil action that's committed by the person. Great question. Thank you so much. As soon as we're done here, Al Cresta takes over. Cresta in the afternoon, he looks at the uh, at all of life in our culture through the lens of Scripture and the teaching of the Catholic Church. He provides a daily conversation. It's personal, it's authentic, it's human about the things that matter most. As Al often says, build the church, bless the nation. That's Cresta in the afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern time on EWTN Radio. Mario is in Chicago listening on WSFI. Mario, you're on with Father Wade. Thank you. I appreciate taking my call. My question has to do with baptism. Uh, I was reading in the Code of Canon Law about that in a case of emergency like necessity, anybody can baptize someone. And, um, you know, like uh, I was wondering, what, what is the, if you could explain, what is the appropriate way and, uh, and how to, to do that when, you know, we have a chance? Because I know there's quite a few children I'm aware of who have never been baptized. Great question, uh, Mario, and thank you for your call today from, uh, from snowy and snowed-in uh, Chicago there. We really appreciate it. So, in danger of death means just that. The person has to be in danger of death. They have to be in danger of dying, okay? Number two, uh, you have to have some knowledge that they would have wanted the baptism, okay? Uh, and number three, uh, the formula has to be correct, and this is the formula, and I'll use Joan Smith again, the, the imaginary person I talked about in the la- with the last caller. Joan, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's the formula that has to be used, a true, authentic formula, verbatim, just as I said it. Joan, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, that's what you need. That's the formula. It has to be truly in danger of death as well. Does that help you out there, Mario? Do you have to put the water on the head three times, or how do you do that? Uh, uh, you, you, it's, it's preferred. Yes, it is preferred. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be a three-time pouring. God bless you, Mario. Thank you so much for your question today. My apologies to Mike in Colorado, but we are flat out of time. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners this day and always, and St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless.